Well, this is a free podcast, so there's no income tax, no VAT, no money back, no guarantee. I'm, I'm in Ludlow, which is where I'm from. I'm visiting my mum, and I've uh, taken the opportunity to get in touch with somebody who's got a massive profile about Doctor Who, but has still agreed to meet me, so I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Who am I? Good question. I'm a bit confused about that myself. No, my name's John Chalice, um, and uh, I was in Doctor Who way back in uh, 1976, The Seeds of Doom, directed by Douglas Canfield, one of the happiest jobs I ever did, I have to say. Um, People still talk about it. It's uh, quite recently gone out on uh, on DVD, and uh, Tom Baker and I and uh, a couple of others did some uh, some chat about it on the end of it. So it's really good to hook up with uh, with everybody again. Um, and uh, I don't know. It's just a part of my life. I do a show, uh, a sort of a, I, suppose I just basically um, stand up on the stage and show off, really, and. Um, <laughs> try and be funny, tell a lot of stories from the business and uh, show a few clips of uh, what I've done and, uh, and one of the clips is from Doctor Who so I'll have a little chat about that and uh, talk a bit about Tom Baker um, and uh, occasionally go to uh, the odd convention I feel a bit of a fraud really because I've never been a doctor or even a doctor's assistant and uh, for heaven's sake I know people like Fraser Hines who tells me he's very important um, <laughs> uh, in the Doctor Who uh, <laughs> uh, but no, no, it's been a great... I still, I still watch it now and again. Um, sit, I can sit on the sofa now instead of sitting behind it, which is where I started with William Hartnell many years ago. But it's, I, something struck me when I listened to the commentary that is great on the Seeds of Doom DVD, where you, you jokingly say, because you're playing a thug, oh, I always fancied myself as a liked comedian. Yeah. Uh, and your career's been very interesting because of your, your, your size, I think, you, and your look. You, you played a lot of sort of villains or policemen, yes. and then latterly you had this great comedy career. So you must be pretty satisfied with the breadth of work that you've done. Yes, I, I mean, comedy's never been uh, far from me. I, I have to say, uh, I started off when I was a kid sort of impersonating people and just mucking about generally. Did no work at school whatsoever, but... Uh, but I always was interested in comedy. I grew up with a goon show, um, which is seminal as far as I was concerned. Um, I went on to uh, Jacques, Tati and, and all that. But I, I was always interested in making people laugh because it was a way of getting through like, getting through school, really, which I, I didn't enjoy a lot, I have to say, particularly the last one. Uh, I was in all the school plays, and um, so the dime was cast pretty early, really, I suppose. Um, and I remember very early on uh, doing rep and so on, and I'd look forward to the comedy parts a lot. And then I auditioned for the Royal Shakespeare Company in the 60s, and uh, I did a comedy piece and a straight piece. And, uh, and the um, casting director, Morris Daniels, or Doris Manuels, as we used to call him, <laughs> uh, said, yes, 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 very good, yes, really. <laughs> obviously, um, Obviously, you are leaning more towards the comedy roles than the um, straightforward Shakespearean roles. And I said, oh, oh, oh yeah, 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 OK. Uh, when I was in the RSC for over a year, I didn't get a hint of a comedy role, but I understood an awful lot of very serious parts. Um, because, um, as you say, I was tall, dark and not very handsome, so uh, I played, uh, played a lot of villains and policemen. But... Uh, 
comedy was never far from me. As I say, I was always interested in making people laugh. <clears throat> I'm over six foot tall, and uh, I've got quite a dark face, and a dark sort of demeanour, I suppose. Um, slightly sort of mocking demeanour, I suppose. Um, and so I was, I was cast a lot of villains, yeah, and a lot of policemen. And uh, when I when I got down here, I, I was I was actually, I suppose, known for only fools and horses, which was it's quite a, I mean, it's not really the sort of the happy Del Boy character that gets very popular. He was a sort of foil for Del Boy, Boise really, and, and Del Boy bounced off him. But he was a bit of a snob and a bit rather superior. Had an inflated idea of his own importance and so on. But that, I think, is... Uh, I don't know if that's me or not, but I played quite a few roles like that because it's always fa- fascinated me how people uh, behave in a jumped-up way and are, feel that they're better than they, they actually are. It's, it's, an, it's a part of human uh, existence, which, is, which has always attracted me. Um, so I found it quite, uh, quite easy to play. But I've done, having said that, I've done a lot of Alan Akebourne plays as well, much lighter stuff. Done quite a few Neil Simon plays, and yeah, it's, it's true what I said. I suppose I, I always saw myself as a comic. You know. My mother, on the other hand, didn't think I was very funny at all. Um, <laughs> she always thought that I make my name playing really heavy characters, but uh, but actually, what's the break I got was uh, was in comedy, a wonderful, sort of long-running comedy series, which then had a spin-off as well. Yeah, lucky old me. Lucky old me to have uh, invented a character that's caught on that people uh, identify with. Us. And what you, you talk of your mother saying, you know, what 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 were your what did your parents <coughs> do? What was your background? Was the uh, yeah, my mother did a bit of amateur work. Um, I think she might uh, she might have gone on and become a professional if the war hadn't intervened. She, uh, as a young woman, she was part of an amateurish company in Bath and Somerset. But the war came, the theatres closed, there was going to be no tomorrow, she drove ambulances during the war, um, and so never went back to it, because then she met my father and had me within sort of two years. War obviously was still on uh, when I was born in 1942, and um, my father was in the Admiralty, um, he, he came from Sheffield, from... Uh, steel working uh, family his dad was a, uh, a wire drawer in a steel factory pretty working class but my dad had uh, from somewhere a bit of ambition a bit of brain and he wanted to get out of there and he joined the civil service and uh, got into the admiralty and was very successful there he was a great organiser and list maker um, and he was in charge of naval stores during the war which is a pretty important job to have but the admiralty was transferred from the west country to uh, to London during the war. So I'm very fond of saying I was the only child evacuated to London during the war. And I'm sure I distinctly remember all these children going the other way saying, bye, have a nice time in London. Um, but they, uh, I don't know, you know, they moved around a lot, Sidcup, Bexley Heath, that sort of place, those sort of places, and finished up in Surrey, stockbroker belt, a place called Tadworth, um, and then uh, eventually in Epsom. Is horse racing a stable business, or does it have its Epsom Downs? <laughs> yes, you see, yes, jokes are never very far from me. Um, but yes, they finished having Epsom, so I don't know where I come from, really. It's, it's sort of a bit of a mixture. I suppose um, 
I suppose middle class England. I don't know. Well, but that, that's sort of peripatetic upbringing. I guess is good for a versatile actor because it means you. you don't can call identify. me peripatetic. I mean, I hardly know you. <laughs> yes, carry on. Yeah. Um, and you're playing, well, playing a, a character quite unlike yourself. Um, I've gathered from uh, our, our lunch that we've just had, Scorby, who is, you know, a mercenary and a thug, and but a good part. Yeah. Oh, yeah, great part. Yes, I remember I had this speech about, I've always looked after myself, uh, I'm a mercenary, I'm not a mercenary for nothing, you know, and then he goes out and absolutely terrified of this great monster, and eventually um, and gets drowned by this sort of voracious weed that he finds in a lake. Um, yeah, well, as I say, this, this kept happening to me. Um, uh, Dougie Canfield, uh, bless his heart, um, he kept um, casting me in these sort of villainous roles because he, he, just, he just said he liked photographing my dark old face, you know. Um, so I constantly had to be a bit tougher than I actually am. I remember the first thing I did for Dougie was the Sweeney and, um, and I had to duff somebody up because I, I was another henchman Peter Vaughan's henchman um, in a Sweeney, and uh, and so I did my best to sort of duff this character up in, in terms of the script. And uh, the fight director came to me and said, "You've never hit anyone before, have you?" And I went, "No, how did you know? <laughs> if you don't hit people like that, you hit people like this, boss. You know." And he taught me sort of how to how to fight because physically I just didn't have that uh, that ability. So. I constantly had to sort of toughen myself up, um, and uh, this happened all the way through. Beaujest, I uh, did with him, uh, and obviously Scorby. It's fascinating, Scorby. Wait, looking at Scorby now because he carries his gun the whole time, and he never gets to fire it, <laughs> not even at the crinoid. You would have thought there was a. I don't think. I don't think he actually ever fires. No, because you're in the forest. You, it's you and Harry Fielder and Pat Gorman, and yeah, yeah. they shoot at the crinoid when it's they shoot with Kenneth his, Gilbert. Yeah. And I remember Pat Gorman's eyes, you know, blinking like this as the, <laughs> the machine guns going off. I don't think I ever get to fire it, but I just look quite threatening. And uh, and I had, I had a few bits with uh, the wonderful Liz Slade. She tries to wrestle the gun off me at one point. Didn't she? Yeah. There's a great bit where you throw Tom Baker into a load of bins, though, which is really Oh, yes, nasty. yes, yeah, yeah. Really horrible. I know, yes. And, uh, of course, Harrison Chase, uh, played by uh, Tony Beckley, who's no longer with us, wonderful, wonderful guy, um, which was feeding people through the, the mincer, wasn't it? Yeah. And then spreading <laughs> them as manure on his, to grow his plant. Brilliant. What a wonderful idea. Kids' tea time entertainment. Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> And laughing about it, too. Yes, that's right. Uh, no, it was a wonderful show. I, as I say, it's one of the happiest jobs I ever did. And, uh, it's, it's one of those, the old cliche, you know, you just can't believe you're getting paid for sort of rushing about and, and enjoying yourself. Right? Well, and we mentioned that it's nice to give a name check. We, we did briefly discuss him over lunch, but Mark Jones, who plays Keeler, who I think is one of the great unsung performances in Doctor Who, and you work with Mark a lot. I did, yeah, two, well, two or three times, uh, and uh, he was a, he was an extraordinary guy, really. Um, I did a fringe uh, play with Mark called Christie in Love by Howard Brenton, and he played John Reginald Halliday Christie, who was a mass murderer, and um, not a terrific comedy part for Mark there, but uh, he was mightily effective and a really good, really good actor, I think. He spent uh, quite a bit of time in the RSC with Peter Brook doing the Maratzard, I think, um, but very, very unsung. Um, and an extraordinary guy, and I, I'm sorry to hear that he got ill and, uh, and is no longer with us, because uh, 
in my show, I keep uh, using this clip of me and uh, Scorby and uh, and Keeler. He's trying to get Keeler to uh, um, to help him in his in his wicked ways and threatens him with a gun. And, uh, but it, his performance just in that scene, I think, is is, is absolutely extraordinary. Um, so. Yeah, I, I mean, I think he did lots, lots of work, didn't he? I mean, he was a really yeah. sensitive guy, and uh, and I sort of wish it's always too late, isn't it? I wish I'd sort of known him better and kept more in touch with him. Really, you must be feeling that a lot, though, because you've you've written um, a book, a, you know, an autobiography. So when you're doing that, do you sort of actively research your own life, or do you just sort of stream it as you go? So are you finding stuff that you'd forgotten was sort of locked away in your memory that starts flowing out? Well, I, I've always written stuff down um, in a completely chaotic way. I mean, if I, uh, if I see a scenario, or I hear somebody say something, or I hear a bit of dialogue or something, or, or just about sort of characters that I see, um, I've always written it down. I've written a couple of plays as well, one of which... Uh, it was really about my adventures in uh, South Africa, um, which did very well. Finished up being uh, being shown in four countries. So I've always written stuff, but what I can't do is construct things. Um, I remember that that South African piece. I had all these stories, and I had to go to a friend of mine who was a television writer and say, "Look, what do I do with this?" And he said, "What is great is you telling the stories. So put yourself on stage, tell the stories." And he sorted it out and, and organised it chronologically chapterized it and all that and that's what's happened with my um, my autobiography um, and it was ex- co- extraordinarily uh, cathartic in a lot of ways because I it made me think about an awful lot of things in my life which I'd never actually confronted you know um, my father particularly my relationship with my father and also my mother uh, what I think about the uh, profession why why do you become an actor is there some psychological reason for that um, you know, um, how do you become an actor, of course, which is something I'm, uh, I'm being asked the whole time. And also sort of parts of your life which, um, which haven't gone well. Um, and you sort of deflect them, don't you? You know, um, and never having thought about them, but, but this sort of forced me to think about them and, and actually write about them, which was, which was very cathartic. But I found um, I had more recall than I thought. So I always thought I've got a not a very good memory, particularly for, for names. Um, but I found that everything I thought of sort of sparked off something else. And I remembered this and that little incident, that, and it was extraordinary how the whole thing just got so big. And again, I've uh, been lucky enough to find someone who, uh, who can organise it for me um, and chapterise it. Um, I mean, chronologically, I knew, I knew how, it, how the story worked, but but it's that weaving, that narrative, that construction of it, that's the weakness. Because I think most actors can write, but how to construct it is the, is the key to it. Do you enjoy it, though? Because there's, it's different. Right, acting and one-man shows and comedy, you get a response straight away. Yeah. Writing is more solitary. It's not easy, uh, because one of my big problems always been concentration. Um, the same at school. I, uh, I'm the original, should have done better, sort of could have done better if he tried harder things. Butterfly mind, I don't know what, what you call it. Lack of concentration. So it's, it's been quite hard for me to discipline myself and sit down and say, right, so you're going to get up early, you're going to sit there, and you're not going to stop till lunchtime. Right? 
but I got around that by not getting up till 12 o'clock. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I didn't know. But I, uh, I remember we went, to, uh, we went on uh, a holiday and sat on a beach, mostly on a beach, and for about two or three weeks. And that was really good. And I found that there was no distraction apart from the wonderful beach. And the sea. But I found that really useful because, because at home, you know, the phone's going, you're thinking about so many other things. Uh, particularly with what I've taken on uh, where I live. Uh, and I find that quite hard to write. I sort of have to go away somewhere, you know, yeah. to do it properly. And the novel that I'm, uh, I'm still writing at the moment, it's the same thing. I've, I've just extended, you know, what's happened to me down here, the people I've met, the stories I've heard, you know, with the, the touch of the, the character of, uh, of Boise moving down to the country, that whole idea. Because it's what happened to me as well. And I had to find out if I fitted into this particular society, which is very particular. Mm. Of course, it helped being off the telly. Mm. But, you know, then you could explore all sort of relationships you've had here. And that, that with, a, with a, a lot of comedy to it, so some very funny things have happened to me down here. And, and it's extraordinary. The country life is so different from the urban life that I came from. So that... That's been doubly difficult because the, the autobiography was me sitting there remembering my own life. But now I've actually got to be creative mm. about it. Although it's still a lot about things that have happened to me and stories I've heard, I've got to create it. Um, but the best stuff comes if there's, a, if there's an element of truth that you build Oh, sure, exactly. sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I guess it's the same with, with most writers, you know, uh, but I, I really do admire the great writing where they've invented something absolutely out of nowhere, you know. And the plots, the plotting, extraordinary. I mean, if you, I mean quite, I'm uh, quite a Jack Reacher fan, for instance. You know, is what I term quite light reading, but you can't put them down because that plot, that plotting is extraordinary, really. And this is where John Sullivan was so wonderful in... Only Fools and Horses. It's the plots, the stories, and how he kept all those threads going and tied them all up in a neat little boat at the end. It's, it's amazing. And that's a lot of the reason that show is so successful. Because it was a funny show, you know, some very good performers in it, and the writing was, was funny. But it's that plotting. That's the key to it. And also the fact it's about people's lives, you know. That's, that kernel of reality that you get. Oh, that happened to me. I know someone that happens, you know, and everybody can identify with those things. And that's the key. And what about before, you know, before now, when, as you say, you're off the telly and you've, you've got this character that everybody knows from two very successful shows. Um, we, we've been talking about acting today. When you were a sort of jobbing actor, when you were starting out in the 60s and things and working on television, it was a very different time we've established to, to, to the acting profession now. But was it, was it I mean... Was there a lot of uncertainty, or could you find there was a lot of work if, if you went looking for it? I, uh, everybody um, tries to put you off it. I mean, they did in my day. Um, I, you know, I mean, see the headmaster and said I wanted to become an actor. And he said, no, no, don't be silly. No, Because no. Um, he said, no, I mean, you'll spend half your life out of work. And I thought, that sounds attractive, I thought. <laughs> I'm not looking to work too hard, you know. But as I say, I started off at school just impersonating people, picked up a guitar, formed a little skiffle. You're probably much too young to remember skiffle, but, but it was the start of it all. Rock and roll started, it was just a really exciting time. And, uh, 
and I found myself in a children's theatre, travelling about, doing little plays in schools, and graduated to rep. And it was easy, if you had anything about you, someone would pick you up and, sit and recommend you to somebody, and you'd find yourself at work in the theatre, you know, not doing very much, usually on stage management, but playing a few parts as well. And it just, I never stopped working for the first five years, really. And I never lived anywhere either. And to me, that was, I don't know why, it was, I loved the gypsy life. And the fact that I, I had, I suppose, no responsibility. I was just, I was just out there, as I say, showing off. Look, look at me. Look how great I am. I can be this person. I can be that person. That was, that was really attractive. I love Peter Sellers and the way he changed his characters. Fascinating. For some reason, I didn't have a particularly unhappy childhood. You know, I wasn't. I don't think. I don't feel I was escaping from anything. It was just I had a facility. You know, for uh, um, mimicry, I suppose I could always mimic people. Ever since I was tiny. I'm told you do a very good Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. Oh yeah, yeah. Yes, that's right. Well, this this came out of uh, this came out as a great story about Doctor Who, really. Uh, you know, when the weather was bad and we were supposed to be filming, and uh, we used to sit in this sort of uh, outhouse thing with a roaring fire on and sit around and tell each other stories and do in, in, in impressions. There was a Tom seemed to like impressions, you know, and I did. Uh, I used to do a fair impression of Jimmy Stewart. And uh, I just remembered a film he did called Fly to the Phoenix and a line he said, which was, uh, Listen, mister, I remember a time when we used to take a real pride in just getting there. <laughs> and Tom loved this. He just... Uh, he, and and he'd, uh, he'd tried to do it himself. Of course, he couldn't because he was hopeless. Uh, but he used to get me to say it as often as possible, sometimes in the middle of a scene. <laughs> so at Scorby, I was suddenly in the middle of the scene. So, Listen, mister... I remember a time when we... And of course everyone had collapsed. Except Douglas Canfield, who got quite cross about it, you know. And years later, we just met by chance in Soho. And, um, you know, Tom's talking about the good old days and the, you know, in his larger-than-life way. He says, you're still doing... Uh, still doing Jimmy Stewart. Never forgot. Just do it for me once more, you know. And uh, so there I am in the middle of Soho. And, uh, Listen, mister... I remember a time when we used to take a real pride in just getting there. And a guy walked past us, did a great big double take, tripped over the pavement, fell flat in his face. Well, onto his knees anyway. And I helped him, I said, are you all right, mate? He said, God, I see, blimey, Boise doing Jimmy Stewart talking to Doctor Who. How often do you see that? <laughs> and he walked off down Old Compton Street going, I don't, I don't, and he kept looking back and just going, I don't, I don't believe this. I can't. <laughs> It's a wonderful uh, extension of a story, you know. When yeah. you think, about, think about where it started. Um, must have but I used, I used to do Clement Freud, because I'm fascinated by Clement Freud and the way he spoke, really. Just to, you know, that sort of David Frost is only the Queen's head on a pound note, so no one can counterfeit. Thank you, <laughs> Worry the Ipswich. You know, I. I used to, but but then uh, the trouble is when you. Um, oh yes, thank you, darling. I did. I met the Beatles. Did you? Well, three of them. Yeah, I did. Um, Magical Mystery Tour, sixty, a little bit eight, something like that, sixty nine. And they were looking for somebody to do the uh, the courier on the coach. Couldn't find anyone, and uh, my agent just 
had a hunch I might get on with them. And um, so she sent me like one Sunday morning, Nim's house, top of Bond Street. I'm going to meet the Beatles. And they're all they're all lying about on the floor with their caftans. Oh, except McCartney, who's behind the desk. <laughs> Lennon's lying on the floor. And um, I don't know. I, don't, I was just feeling a very cheeky mood that day. And anyway, we're getting on okay, you know. And uh, you see, by the way, we got a, fa- a favourite Beatles tune, you know. And I, I said, for some reason, I said, actually, I prefer the Rolling Stones, which I did. But why did I say it, you know? And I felt, you know, that moment when you, I, wish, I shouldn't have said that. But this is long pause. I thought I've really blown it because we're getting on very well. And he said, actually, I think you're right. I prefer them sometimes, too. <laughs> because I loved Lennon's humour, you know. And, um, and I was supposed to do it, but I couldn't do it because I was, I was unavailable. I was clashed by two days' rehearsal for The Newcomers, which is the first telly I'd ever done. Uh, can you imagine? Yeah. I was shattered. <clears throat> and I never saw him again, of course. Um, but, you know, I... Uh, yeah, I, d- I suppose I've done a few few impressions. I don't, there's so many brilliant impressionists about, though, now. I just think, OK, I give up. You know, I can't do it. If you think about uh, Alistair McGowan and... Uh, it's brilliant stuff. And uh, Rory Bremner. I see a bit of Rory Bremner. Well, I, yeah, because we work for the same charity. Um, and he's just... You, you watch his acts, you just think, OK, that's it, I give up the business. I mean, that is so clever. Not only the impersonation, but I mean, he's just amazing. Well, you, you, you touched on um, Dougie Canfield getting uh, a bit cross when you did your... Uh, he, he comes across as a, a sort of dualistic figure because he was this military man, wasn't he, who ran yeah, yeah. everything precisely, but also seems to be a bit of a sort of maverick who was a bit out there as well. So yeah. how did those two things reconcile? Well, I don't know. He, he certainly had a crazy streak, uh, he was a fair guitarist too. We used to we used to do quite a lot of. I used to live next door to him actually. Some, some just before he died, um, and we used to play the guitar a bit with his son, uh, Joran, who's also quite. No, he's in the music business now, I think, Joran. Um, but uh, oh, we go out, we play a bit of tennis, we chuck a frisbee about, all sorts of things he was into. Um, but yes, I mean his direction was quite military in its style. It was. But he was the sort of man, you know, you imagine the First World War, you see those old poor guys in the trenches there. You would have followed him up over the top. and You know, he was one of those guys. He was, he, he was famous for getting things in under budget in an impossible short time, like Beaugest I did with him. And you think, how the hell did we do that? That massive story. And... Uh, he was a religious man, he was a born-again Christian, and I remember Beaugest, the BBC being the BBC, of course, said, you can only have the stunt riders for about a day. So he's in massive battle scenes, which he's supposed to do according to the script. He's only got them for a day. What about the weather? And it's a threatening old day. It's a cloudy day, you know. It looks like rain. Rain is forecast. And we just think there's been a bit of rain, and they haven't put enough drainage in the fort that they built in the sandpit near Swanage. So it's filled up with water, so they have to let, <laughs> let that out. Now, there we are in the sandpit. It looks like rain. And I'm just looking for Dougie for something else, and I can't find him. But eventually, I just look behind this sort of sand dune, and there he is on his knees, praying 
to God to keep the rain off and he did and we got the, sh the shots in just before the light went you know but he, everything I did with him he never had he never seemed to have enough time to do um, I suppose it's his budgets you know but but he was a great action director you know did a play for today number on end with him and uh, playing another henchman South African this time so you know I got here again I got you know use my my talent for accents, you know. I could do this. Yeah, it was a good part. Victor Mintel, you know. I'm going to shoot this terrible... So I'm going to shoot this African man. He's an African chieftain. I mean, who's going to miss him, you know? I mean, it's all this sort of wonderfully... Um, wonderfully uh, incorrect stuff. And uh, But again, there again, it was a massive great story sprawling all over the place. We went to Belgium and all that. He had about two weeks to do it. <laughs> but he did it. He did it. And it was the most massive fun. And, uh, as I say, you'd follow him anywhere. Well, he was always close to time, and I'm narrowly uh, uh, looking like I'm going to exceed the time I promised to take with you. So I've got three more things. First is, what's next? I mean, you're here in Ludlow. You've been a great champion, I have to say, of, of, of the thing that um, was a great foundation for me as an actor of the Ludlow Festival. Um, so you're, st you're, you're, you're still sort of active and you care, which is really nice. Oh yes, well I, I I hope I do. Yes, I um, I believe in the area. I believe in the Ludlow Festival, and also the assembly rooms there. I I I sort of uh, have a bit of an issue with the with the way they've been run over the years, you know. But I I appeared in Twelfth Night as uh, Malvolio a couple of years ago up there, and uh, we did okay. Uh, but um, things have got to change. The world has changed. You can't do anything about it. Um, and you've got to do different sorts of things to attract the audience you need. Um, so I've been a bit instrumental, I hope a bit helpful in, in terms of that for the festival and also uh, the assembly rooms. But I firmly believe that there should be a theatre you know, in every town, as there was when I started. You know, uh, but it has to be about other things as well. Uh, that's the difference. Because everybody's got a telly, so everybody's got so much choice now. But there are so many causes, um, and I'm constantly amazed about how generous people are. You know, even in straightened times, how people will get together and help causes that are important to a community. Um, and also each other, you know, when they run into trouble. Um, and uh, I, I suppose I've opened a lot of things. It's great to be in the position that I'm in, I think. You know, because the series Only Fools and the Green Green Grass was so good, so successful, and to be the character that's caught on, you can you can go to somewhere, just sort of open a fate where the money is for charity and so on, and you could put perhaps a hundred people on the gate or something, and it makes such a difference to people. Um, and I'm very privileged to be in that position, and um, and it, it gives you a terrific value for your life, you know. And, it's another a trite old phrase of giving something back, but you feel at least you've you said a sort of thank you to the people who put you where you are. So that's be, that's important to me. Well, it's great, and and things like this podcast wouldn't exist without uh, that kind of generosity. So, uh, but we do ask you, listeners, because you're not paying, because John's given his time for free, as have I. Um, we ask you to nominate to donate to a charity, and John's going to nominate that now. I didn't realise I wasn't getting paid for this. Now she tells me. No, no. Um, no, this is my, my charity is um, uh, the Tusk Trust. Uh, this is a big um, umbrella-type charity that is uh, trying to save uh, rhinos 
elephants, particularly from getting poached in Africa. Uh, there are some extremely dangerous people about um, in other parts of the world who will pay an awful lot of money um, for the rhino horn, for the elephant tusks, and also to a lesser extent for the tigers. Um, I mean, any endangered species, I think it is so, uh, so important to save these species and still to be able to see them in the wild. I mean, I've done quite a bit of work for them already. I've been to Africa quite a lot. Um, and uh, I just think it's very important. I think it's very important for the human race because if we're so busy eradicating other species from the world, I mean, how, how do we know it might rebound on us one day? Um, and also, these, I think the law has got to change but also if people could give money to, uh, to Tusk Trust. In, in terms of you can, uh, I mean, you can adopt an animal, you can do all sorts, there's all sorts of wonderful ways to do it. You've got kids out there, get, get them to adopt an animal, it's a wonderful way to do it. Um, but they need all the support they can get because uh, the poaching has increased massively over the, the last couple of years um, because there are so many unscrupulous people about Yes, I mean, uh, Rory Bremner is part of this. Uh, also, Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones. Um, and I think we are the, uh, the oldest two patrons of the Tusk Trust. I, I, uh, I was instrumental when it first started in uh, saving a herd of male elephant from getting shot. Um, and I went out there on a, on a safari, which was one of the great times of my life, I have to say, to see all the, uh, the brave people who are trying to, uh, to save them. So... Uh, Please help us save these wonderful animals because I don't know if you've seen them in the, uh, in the wild but it is the most wonderful. Very humbling, I think. Um, and they've been around a lot longer than we have, let's face it. Well, and then, well, thanks to John and to his wife, Carl, who's been sitting very patiently. Um, the last question is, it's Doctor Who's 50th anniversary this year. It started the day after John F. Kennedy got assassinated. What is your message to the Doctor Who fans listening? Well... <laughs> uh, <laughs> My message is, um, I started watching it with William Hartnell uh, all those years ago. I didn't realise that that was, it was the day after. Yeah. Gosh, because that was a moment. My God. I remember, uh, yeah, I was in, I was in rep in Bexhill-on-Sea. I was a Penguin player at the time. Oh, what a shattering moment that was. I didn't realise it. No, I mean, keep on watching it. Uh, the world has changed. Doctor Who has changed massively. Uh, when I was in it in uh, the mid-70s, it was... Uh, you look back on it and the special effects are uh, not what they are today, shall we, shall we say, but the stories are great. And, um, and I must say, you know, the, you know the, I've, I've watched uh, quite a few of the, of the modern ones and I, and I think they're absolutely brilliant. And I think it's a, I think it's a, wonderful, a wonderful part of everybody's life, you know. And you bring the kids up on it and keep on watching it and let's have more of it. Brilliant. And, you know, we saw Scorby go under. We didn't know he didn't necessarily stay under, so you never know. The doctor might stumble upon him in a brook somewhere, and we'll yes. see John Chalice in Doctor again. But until then, John Chalice, thank you very much. A great pleasure, thank you very much. Thanks, John. It's great, thank you. And thank you for your support. Huge thanks to John. Um, really grateful for his time, and what, how fortunate that he lives in Ludlow, where I am from. So I managed to tie that in with a visit to my mum. Uh, there's another Who's Round coming shortly. But if you'd like to show your appreciation for this one by donating to John's charity, you can go to www.tusk.org. Please give if you can. Every little helps. In the meantime, here's a taster of what's in store in the next edition of Toby Haydock's Who's Round. Thanks for listening.
which is ridiculous. I mean, a grown person going around making funny noises in a rehearsal room is just a... But there you are, that's Dr. Who, isn't it? <laughs> Hold your horses, what's this? A History of Earth, volume 36,379, by Kronos Vad. <laughs> Kronos Vad? Who the devil is he? Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, the worlds of Big Finish. We're not just talking about any book. We're talking about an object that shouldn't exist. And you say this book is of great importance? Oh, you cannot begin to imagine. <laughs> Any idea as to its origins? There's only one place it could have come from, and that's the Archive, a near-infinite library containing every book that ever was and ever will be. But larger than the British Library? Yes. It's bigger than the whole flipping solar system. It's a near-infinite library. Goodness me. There are very few cultures anywhere in the universe that do not believe in a doomsday. And is it true this book predicts the end of the world? Yes, if one believes in that sort of thing. And it says the world will end this month? This week, in fact. And in rather extraordinary circumstances. That book is the most important ever written. Oh, really? They're gonna destroy it, you realize. Who is? The Gomegog. And they are... They are practically ubiquitous, from the very first traces of intelligent life to the present day. You make them sound like gods. We want this world and everything in it. Then if you're so powerful, why don't you take it? Why bother with this charade? To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. <laughs> a time to be born, and a time to die. And there shall come... From the space between spaces, the great darkness of Gomegog. One by one, there shall conquer worlds and end them in all universes. I have a feeling that what we have seen here is but a fragment of something considerably larger in scale. A plot, or rather plot more intricate than even I shall ever truly understand. Fascinating. I do love a good mystery. Don't you? Big Finish. We love stories. <laughs>